and Christ's adequacies. So, as we've been saying for a few weeks now, John's major focus point is is that he is trying to share who and what specifically the personages of Jesus by defining who his deity and his humanity so that we may believe in him as the scriptures have taught us and that we may follow him appropriately as the scriptures have taught us. So John's entire book is summed up in John chapter 20, verse 30. It says, but these are written, all the things he wrote, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John defines in this particular book, he's going to define miracles, but he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. So he calls them signs because he is still trying to provide proof that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Therefore, when he says signs, they are to show you the way on the highway of life to know who the promised one is for salvation. Amen? Let's stand for the reading of God's word. In John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew where it had come from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have become drunk, then the poor wine. But you have saved the best wine until now. This is the first sign, first sign, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning that we can gather, Lord, and hear your word, that we may learn from it. Lord, we are unable to be protected from our inadequacies. And for that purpose, Lord, so that you may show yourself glorious and wonderful in our inadequacies. It's not just forgetting something, missing this or that. Lord, we are inadequate to show you specifically how worthwhile and worthy you are of all glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to build this sermon together, okay? We're going to go line upon line, because if we were to just read the scripture as we just did, 
we see a wedding. Jesus, his mother Mary is there with him, his disciples. And there's a miracle that happens. And so we go, yay, miracles, wonderful. We're going to get to see them. Now, John doesn't record all of the miracles that the other three Gospels do. John only records eight of them. So, and there were more. There's a specific reason for that, too. We will not be getting into that this morning as to why. But as I read through this and we build this together, your minds are going to go to different places. Every one of you have different experiences, different sermons you've heard, different Bible studies you've gone through. And you're going to catch a glimpse of something and your mind's going to go, oh, that makes sense. Now that, put that together. So, and that's good. And I want you to do that. So we can't explain every avenue by which this set of scripture has to do with all things of life. But I've chosen specifically this morning to be dealing very providentially with inadequacies. Okay. So a thing about Cana, right? This little village, it's near the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth, where Jesus said he's from, it's where he was raised. It's only about six miles to the west, if you're looking your direction. Nine miles to the east is Galilee, right? So if you picture this on a map, it's right in the middle of six and nine in there, right, right between, you got Nazareth, Gal- uh, Cana, and Galilee. So between these areas, there's not a lot of miles. Now, it seems like a lot to us because we would never think of walking six miles from Nazareth to Cana. They didn't have transportation like we do. We would never think of walking to the corner store except for maybe the Downies. It's right there. (laughs) But I wouldn't walk down to Harrisburg gas station. I wouldn't do that. And that's not even six miles. I would take my car because it's easier. But the ancient man was very versed with walking. We all know Pastor Nang had walked hundreds of miles, and it was no big deal. So we're dealing with ancient man, which isn't too far off from third world man, who doesn't have the transportation needs that we do. Well, needs, <laughs> desires that we do. So all of these towns are relatively close, even though they may sound far for you, like to drive six miles, right? But they're relatively close in ancient man's mind because these towns are small, in the exception of Galilee, because it is right there at the Sea of Galilee, these towns are very small. And very similar to the, say, Harrisburg here, we have a small village that has a small village outside of it, Darby Dale. Still unsure, Ville and Dale. Darby Dale, right there. In the old days, this red house right across the street was a post office. It was the first Pony Express in all of Ohio. So everyone from all the surrounding towns would come to that red house right there to get their mail. And they would have to walk or take a horse or a mule or some sort of thing. You know, at that time in the 1880s, we're dealing with some buggies at that point, but still not cars. So you got to think these guys are close. They know one another. People in Darbydale in older days, knew everyone in Harrisburg. People in Harrisburg knew everyone in Darbydale. There was commonality. There was shopping. There was commerce going on. They knew one another. If they were selling their wares, we're talking even more ancient than 1880, people would have to sell every day what they produce in order to, or maybe once a week if they go to the bazaar or the market. 
they were entwined with everybody from these communities. So Galilee, Nazareth, Cana, they knew one another. They were relatively very close in comparison to what we see today, what we deal with. But because they were very close, they had a lot of friends and relatives. Think of Harrisburg. I live in Harrisburg. My son marries a girl from Darbydale. Now they have a house in Darbydale. My relatives are in Darbydale. So there's a lot of intermingling amongst these small towns and villages. It's important to remember that when we get through this as we're talking about this wedding here in Cana. So Mary was there. Mary was, now it doesn't say Joseph was there. It says the mother of Jesus was there. Scholars understand that by this time, Joseph has passed away and Jesus is the man of the house. But Mary is there. And she's been living in Nazareth initially at the time of the Annunciation where the uh, Gabriel came to her and told her about this child she was going to have. From there, they fled because of Herod's rules. They went to Egypt. They stayed in Egypt for four years. This is why the Egyptian Coptic Christians take such honor in the fact that Jesus lived on the Nile. He lived there for four years of his young life. After the death of Herod, they come back. They come back to Nazareth to live and to work. Jesus grew up in this area. He and Mary would have known the people in this area very well. They would have sold their furniture to the people of these towns throughout the years. It's really quite easy to just look at Jesus as the supernatural water-walking being, but he was a man who had to take care of his mom because his dad died. He would be a sinner if he did not, according to Jewish law. He had to do this. He, he was the eldest child and had to care for his mother, the widow. And his father was a carpenter. And he would have trained Jesus to be a carpenter. So Jesus was making furniture for people to buy. Strange concept, right? It's not that hard of a stretch, but it's hard for us to realize, to look at the Savior of the world making a chair or a table. I don't know if they had chairs at that time. They reclined at tables, so maybe they didn't have chairs. They had thrones. But nonetheless, he was a carpenter in whatever fashion that was. They didn't have crown molding in their uh, mud huts. You know, they're not mud huts like in Africa, but they're, they're made of stone. Uh, they're hewn out. They didn't make homes of wood at that point. So it's not as if he was making grand staircases. He was pretty much a furniture maker. And, and things of the sort. So, <clears throat> I remember a movie where they tapped into Jesus being just that, a man, a furniture maker, before his ministry, and his mother comes into the room and says, what is that? He's like, I'm calling it a chair. It's going to be kind of neat. Look, you can sit on it. Like, it had not been yet invented. <laughs> it, it wasn't accurate biblically, but it was kind of cute, right? <laughs> Like, who else would invent something that nobody else knew about? Uh, God. <laughs> God gave us chairs. So, uh, so they would have known everybody in this area. They would have known everybody very well because they would have had dealings with everybody. People would have bought their stuff that he's made throughout the years before his ministry started. So understanding Joseph had passed away, he wasn't there at the, at the wedding. Now, Jesus had been Mary's provider since she was widowed. It was nothing 
for them to have a very special relationship other than mother and son. He is now, in, in a Jewish culture, that son becomes the man of the house. Even at a very young age, even when dad is home and alive, they're training him to be the man of the house. So now that his father has passed, he is that much more because he has to be everything for his mother. She was unable to work. So, here we are. Jesus and Mary about to go to a wedding in the neighboring town, Cana. The wedding celebration was a spectacular event. There would have been lots of people in attendance there. There would have been relatives and relatives of relatives. There would have been friends and friends of friends. All of these places, these three towns together would have culminated to this wedding because a wedding is a very important and sacred and very special thing. We're about to see that next week. But in a honed down version, and you'll see why I, why I say honed down. So their celebrations, their wedding celebrations would last for three days. Three days. And during that three days, it was a party. So it was all day, all night, everybody stay there and celebrate. So there would have been lots of people there who knew one another. And this is important when we understand what type of miracle sign he did. This was just a single wedding celebration, but it was a defining moment for a young man. So the important thing about an ancient wedding is that a wedding to a Jew was a very colossal event. It typically lasted the three days, depending on your social status. In larger cities, the invitation would have gone out to those within your, we'll say, district or your block or um, in your ghetto in, in, in uh, New York, in your section, right? They have different sections. There's little Italy, there's, there's little Israel, every, there's Chinatown. Like, you would have had your invitation go out to all your people, right? And that's in a larger city. But in a rural district, in a rural area, you would have been inviting people from your neighboring towns that you do work with, people that you know, people that are your friends, people that are your relatives. So there would have been a much grander scale for a rural wedding. For a Jew, a wedding was a major celebration, something to look forward to for an entire year. So this is different as well. The betrothal happens a year prior. They get engaged. And for one year, that husband-to-be is to go prepare a place for his bride. He's to get everything ready. He's to build a house, whether an extension on to his father's house or his own house within the town, a piece of property he may have bought. But he was to go prepare everything for his bride. It gives us an idea of what Jesus is doing for us. He has prepared a place. And he says he has already prepared a place. He is not preparing. He has already prepared. So this was a responsibility, a responsibility that this young man had. He was not only supposed to prepare this house, he was supposed to fund and prepare this entire feast, this wedding. He was to show his future father-in-law he can handle it. He can take care of this woman. That father is about to give his daughter away to this young man, and he wants to know he can take care of her for the rest of her life. 
Often we get in our minds this image of a woman just being a piece of property and she was sold for commodities and that may have happened in, in, the, in the royal sector and they're trying to align certain marriages for house uh, representation, but it didn't happen in the royal country areas. There, there may have been arranged marriages, but it was still a father's joy to give his daughter away. She was still a precious thing to, his, to, to him. It wasn't just a transaction. So this was a big deal, a major deal for this young man. So we have this major celebration that he has been preparing for for an entire year. And then the wine runs out. That is a shameful thing. That is a horrible thing. He is showing everybody that he cannot adequately prepare and take care of his wife to be. It is a shameful thing for that wine to run out. He would have been utterly humiliated had he known that this had happened. The Bible doesn't tell us that he knew or not. So, can you feel the anxiety that would have been welling up in this young man? He's been preparing for a year, and now he can't hack it. Somehow the wine ran out. Maybe more guests came than he thought. Maybe somebody invited the real big guy who can drink a lot. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't supposed to be there because he was going to go through too many, too many goblets of wine. Either way, the anxiety would have been swelling up. If not for him, whether he knew or not, we don't know. It was swelling up for Mary. So you can get, you can get a sense of what the situation would have been like, right, men? You are preparing a place for your bride and you're about to go to your father-in-law and we know your father-in-law and the things he put you through. Imagine if you were just like, hey, sorry, Oscar, I cannot provide for your daughter and I proved it today. Like, you would not want to have that conversation. Right. But Mary's feeling it. So at this time, Mary says to her son, the wine has run out. Why would the Bible tell us this? We also don't know because there's not a lot in here, built in here, but we're looking at what is between the lines here, which can be dangerous. You must be careful with that because you can hear sermons that are so far out in left and right field that they're trying to pull from everywhere just to make this thing happen. But we're just looking at a wedding. We're looking at the reason Mary is coming to her son and saying the wine has run out. Mary would have been prominent in that area. Something else to keep in mind. We look at the Holy Family as this poor, destitute family that had to deliver in a manger. They weren't poor. Certainly not after the birth of Christ. When you had the Magi come bringing gifts that were fit for a king. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh were very, very costly. They were good stewards. They would have held on to this. They would have preserved this as long as they could. In addition to working, they would not have been wasteful. So the Holy Family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, were wealthy enough to be comfortable. It's not to put them in the upper echelon, but they would have been known amongst the other poor people in the area. They would have been known as people who are more comfortable than the paupers. So a lot of things to keep in mind that we oftentimes just glaze right over when we read Scripture. 
So Mary, we don't know if she was a host. It could be. We're saying could be. It could be that she's a host, and this is why she would care about that. Because it's important to her that there's wine there, too, because she understands just how humiliating this is going to be for this young man. So she goes to Jesus and says, there is no wine. The wine ran out. She didn't say anything else. Just like a mom does. (laughs) She can walk into your room and look at you. She can look at the, the condition of your room. This room, that's all she has to say. <laughs> this room. And us boys, we know what that means. We know the question that isn't asked. Mary said, the wine has run out. <clears throat> now, Jesus has been the caretaker of Mary. She's used to going to Jesus with her issues. Ladies, how great it would be every time you had a problem, you can go to the one who has all the answers. Jesus never led her astray. He never gave her bad advice. He's God incarnate from birth. He didn't become God at 30 years old at the start of his ministry. He's God from birth. He had all the answers. He never led her astray. He never gave her bad advice. He, she trusted in his counsel. Because he knows all things. Imagine that. That's a big thing to live up to, men. I know I can't. My wife comes to me for advice, and sometimes I'm like, I got nothing. Actually, I'll give you a whole bunch of advice, and then I find out I wasn't supposed to give you advice. I was just supposed to listen to you. I'm still learning. Jesus never did that. I'm sure of it. So Jesus says to her, it's not my time. My time hasn't come on the scene yet. So what am I supposed to do with this? Like a wise mother, she doesn't answer him. She just looks at the stewards and says, do whatever he says. She knows he's going to do it. It's his mom. She knows he's going to do it. She tells the stewards, Do whatever he says. That's what we call a mic drop. (laughs) After After Jesus tells them to get the water pots and fill them up to the brim, somewhere between verses 8 and 9, the miracle happens. The sign happens. It doesn't say exactly and at this moment, but we can see between these two periods, between verse 8 and 9, somewhere in that little white space between the number 9, This miracle happens, and it's probably the most understated miracle performed by Christ. Can you imagine being the porters, the stewards? At this very moment, the water becomes wine. They hadn't seen a miracle in over 500 years. No miracles had been done. They had the 400 years of silence. That's one thing. How long before the last miracle of the Old Testament? It was Daniel not being ravaged in the lion dead. That's the last miracle in the Old Testament. That was 50 years prior to Malachi. Five, over five, almost 550 years from Daniel in the lion's den to Christ turning water into wine. 
That's amazing. We hear about miracles in the Western world. We hear about people, arms didn't work, they get prayed, now they work. Their legs, they were lame, now they can walk. People were dead, now they can. It's more familiar to us. And so it may be hard for you to really understand what these young men were grappling with here. But you had water that was filled to the brim. There's a reason why to the brim. Filled to the brim. Water. Just became wine. Good wine. That's an amazing miracle. And it says nothing about it. Nothing. Just draw it out and go serve it to the guy. The guy who's in charge of everything. So, amazing that God wouldn't make this more of a grandiose entrance. The first miracle ever that Jesus is going to do, the start of his salvific ministry, and it just says, you turn water to wine, now go serve it to the head, head waiter. Like, There's a lot missing there. That's an amazing, amazing thing for these guys to witness this. It kind of would have been similar to what we'd imagine if you've ever read the books or seen the movie, the Narnians. They lost faith that Aslan even existed. They said, oh, that's, that's just stories to entertain children. It's, it's not real because it had happened so long ago. It was folklore. Similar that. These Jews would have been in the same boat. God was for them. He, he's not anymore. We know the ancient stories of our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, but nothing like that happens around these parts. Actually, nothing we've ever heard of happening anywhere in the world. So this would have been a major, major thing for this to happen right here. So we don't know why he didn't make it grander, but knowing people the way that we know them, it must have spread like wildfire. These porters would have told about it. It would have gone around. So here you got Jesus, the fatherless carpenter from Nazareth, doing this amazing thing for his friends and his family at a wedding. It's very strange because a few months later in John chapter 8, the same people that he turned the water into wine for ended up picking up stones to kill him. Man's heart is exceedingly wicked. So I want to circle back for a moment back to the mic drop. Mary said, do what he tells you. So we find it interesting why Jesus said, fill it to the brim. So it could be so that there was no room left in those pots. It says that there were about 20 to 30. It's kind of weird that they would say 20 or 30. Like you would know definitive. I mean, we're, we're talking scripture, the authoritative word. Why was it not 20? Or why was it not 30 gallons? It was a 20 or 30 gallons. Could have been that there was three 20-gallon ones and three 30-gallon ones. It doesn't really matter. The fact is they had anywhere between 120 to 160 gallons of water that was about to become 160 gallons of wine. He filled it to the top so there was no discrepancy. There was nowhere that anyone could speculate that some kind of trickery had gone on. He added something to it. He made wine from the water by putting something in there. No, there was no room because he filled it to the brim, right to the top to where it starts to go and falls out. 
He removed any doubt from the future reader. He performed a legitimate miracle. So a thing about the water and the wine. There were six water pots. We know anywhere between 120, 180 gallons in total. Do any of you guys have that much water just laying around your house? Luke? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Well, as Presbyterians, we might have that much wine. We don't have that much water. We don't have much use for water, which some of the ladies feel like there's a great use for water. You have to stay hydrated. But I'm going to show you that we can do that with wine, too. All right. So we don't have this much. Not likely. None of us have this kind of amount hanging around. And it wasn't just hanging around. These pots were here for purification rituals. These were for washing. This is stuff that they would have been accustomed to as Jews. They would have been constantly with They were actually baptizing their hands. Right? And they were baptizing their face and their feet. This was during their meal. There were so many times in which they were washing. It was almost like looking at somebody with a compulsive disorder. But they were doing it for religious reasons that were laid out in Leviticus and also in the extra writings of the, the, um, the Mishnah, which some other day. So they were constantly washing. These are why these water pots were here. This was not drinking water. This was water just to wash with. They didn't have fresh, clean, crisp water from the tap or from the well like we do. Their water couldn't be trusted. So they drank wine all day, every day. Sounds like it would just be a massive uh, town of drunkards. They didn't because they would water that down. They would water that water down with the wine. So the alcohol in the wine would purify the impurities in the water. They knew, biblically, they could not become drunk. It was a sin to be drunkards. So they wouldn't drink strong wine every day. They would water things down, sometimes three parts, sometimes ten to one. Depending on, you're not going to have strong wine at 11 o'clock in the afternoon when you have a full day's of work ahead of you. So they knew how to make the, the preparations, depending on what they were doing, that would make it refreshing for them, but not harmful to them. But they certainly wouldn't have just straight party wine. That's not what they were drinking on the regular. And the reason they would have to do it is because they didn't have refrigeration. So because they didn't have refrigeration, everything fermented. So they made wine from all kinds of fruit, not just grapes, but predominantly from grapes, and they would use it to dial it down and make it kind of like a, a wine cooler or something that doesn't have much um, alcoholic content so they could still wash down their food, they could quench their thirst, and they don't have to worry about being drunk going back out to work. So it wasn't the stronger wine that you and I drink today. Right? That's wine we buy from the store. That's stronger. That's, that's not entirely watered down. So we see here... That even though they were drinking the wine, it says they were drinking the good wine during the wedding. Later, this head waiter, we can call him the master of ceremonies, he says, you've brought out the best wine. And this baffled him. So let's note here that Jesus made 150 gallons of the best wine. They had already been drinking good wine, but this was stronger wine. Psalms 104.15 says that wine uh, says that wine gladdens the heart. Some of us know that. Water 
was known to be weak. Wine is known to be strong. Every bottle of wine that's made today, our culture, our time, every bottle of wine made today is anywhere from 80 to 85% water. So, when I need to hydrate, <laughs> what better way? 80 to 85% water. So imagine a bottle, typical 750 milliliter bottle, right? 80% of that is just water, right? And then there's anywhere from 13 to 14% actual alcohol, and then there's some other ingredients, minerals, acids, things to preserve it. But you get, this is why we read on the side of our bottle, 14% alcohol by volume, right? If you ever wonder what that means, like I'm drinking this thing, what is 14%? How do you get uh, 12% by volume in a, in a can this big and 14%? And it's just because how much they're putting in, how much water compared to how much alcohol that is anywhere 10, 14, 15%, some of the stronger ones more. Right? So that's a sense of watering it down. If we were to drink the straight alcohol, that would be bad for every one of us and probably very disgusting, very bitter. You know, that, that water then tones it down. So water is weaker, wine is stronger. So we have this bottle that is filled mostly with water. That means that which is strong is compromised by, uh, or is comprised, that stronger wine is comprised, is made up of that which is also weak. That means that which is strong is also made from weakness. Therefore, that which is weak has the potential to become strong. So if water is weak, and you may have felt like water at times in your life, you're weak. And looking forward to the strength of the Lord to return to you, you are only partly weak. But Christ doesn't need you partly weak. He needs you fully weak, up to the brim, before he turns your situation of weakness into strength. You're only partially. You've been used up by ceremonial things to God. You're worn out. You're weak. But Christ doesn't want you partially. He needs you fully weak. He is the one who will fill you up with weakness so that He can change your circumstance and make you strong. Your inability, your incompetency, you are unable to accomplish this on your own. Your situation is weak, and you will become weaker until God has appointed the time to say, water, now wine. And in your weakness, he will make you strong. It's in our weakness, he is strong. So don't fret being weak. Don't grow weary in doing well when you're weak. Because God is trying to bring you to the brim so that he can change you into something that is powerful. He is strong in our weakness. So get into his word. Saturate yourselves in it. Memorize it. Pray fervently. Pray that Jesus will change what is seemingly shameful and embarrassing, the weaknesses, and change it into the wine of gladness that others through you will taste and see that he is good. The first of the signs that he performed was to point to the fact that Jesus cares about what you care about. 
like the young man's reputation amongst his peers. And that he is the only one who can fix the scenarios and situations. He doesn't just deal with what he has. He, like the half-emptied pot, he wants to fill it up to make all things new. Verse 11 says that Jesus performed this first for the, of his signs in Cana in Galilee. He thus reveal, revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. In believing in him, we will be strong when you are at your weakest. He has not only the ability, but he has the desire to rescue us from our situations. Our God is compassionate, compassionate and merciful to his people. So today, purpose in your hearts that you will get closer to God no matter how weak you are at this moment. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be here in this church, Lord. Thank you that even through my own inadequacies this morning and my forgetfulness, Lord, you are faithful. Thank you, Lord, that you are still able to help me be able to deliver this this morning, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that it came just in time. Lord, I appreciate your goodness in our lives. Father, I pray, Lord, for your blessing upon your people here today. Lord, that we would hear what you had to say in your scriptures. That we will take this to heart, Lord, that in our weakness you are strong. And Lord, that there are times we feel so weak, and yet we must be filled even further with weakness up to the brim before, Lord, you will do something miraculous and turn that which is weak into a strength. Lord, thank you for understanding and illumination of your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.